silence. We don't like it, do we? Makes us a little bit uneasy. Maybe for a moment there you thought, what's Rod doing? What's going on? Is he having an epiphany? Is, has he forgotten everything he's going to say? But there's, there's something about silence that we struggle with. We don't like it, neither did, did the Jews, but for 400 years, they experienced silence from hearing from God. Now, we, we know that as part of the story. We, we actually, in the songs that we sang, acknowledged that. But just think about not hearing from God for 400 years. When a country is used to God speaking through his prophets, and they're gone, and they have no direct revelation from him through a prophet for 400 years, and they wander, they go through trial and difficulty, they go through bondage, and they might even you know, be set up again, so to speak, in the various places where they are, but they have not heard from God. And yet, during this season that we are reading about today, God breaks into that silence now for a second time. And he speaks to a young woman named Mary. Now, imagine the following scene if you could. Joseph is in the workshop building a chair. And young Mary is busy working at home in the kitchen preparing the evening meal. The point is they're going around just their regular, normal, mundane routine, just like you and I do, day in and day out. And all of a sudden, an angel appears. Appears to Mary in particular in this passage. And this is what the angel says. Taking out all of the, the content and just focusing on what the angel says. Listen. Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the, the, the child uh, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, that's the message this angel is bringing. Silence. And all of a sudden, pow! Here's this message. Here's this plan, this divine plan that is going to be worked out in this moment and in, in the moments to follow. And so in the mundane routine of that Life that she was experiencing, then God chooses to visit Mary. But he visits her through this divine messenger, Gabriel. And so he announces to Mary that she is going to experience an adjustment in her life. <laughs> That's an understatement. 
It is, however, an adjustment that God has ordained, and it is an adjustment that will seem impossible to her. I'm calling it a divine adjustment. A divine adjustment is this, a circumstance in your life which God has allowed to take place or has deliberately created for his glory and for your good. God purposed to come to Mary. God purposed to work through Mary. God purposed to accomplish his purposes in this way. And in doing that, it would cause for Mary an incredible adjustment, but a divine adjustment. And what we must remember here is that like Mary, God is also at work in our lives and we use adjustments, divine adjustments, to accomplish his purposes. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. You return home on a Monday afternoon around four o'clock to find your house up in smoke, flames going to the clouds. Friends, that's a divine adjustment. And I just had a personal friend, some of you know Gary Pollard up at North Creek. That's exactly what happened to him. He was driving home and he saw all these, all these you know, fire trucks and all this noise going on. And as he drove up his street, there's this house on fire. You never think it's going to be ours, but it was his, just going up in smoke. That's an incredible adjustment. Maybe when you arrive at work tomorrow, you find on your desk or in your credenza a pink slip saying, we're sorry to inform you that your position is being terminated. And friends, there's a lot of that going on for a lot of different reasons. And that is a divine adjustment. Maybe your child of 19 years comes to you and says, I don't believe in all that junk you've been trying to shove down my throat about God. I don't need him or the church. That's a divine adjustment. It's a shock to the system. It changes your day and your week and your month and your years. You get a panic phone call from a fellow parent who has heard some terrible news that there has been a shooting at your son's school, that people have died, and that, to their knowledge, some children are also affected. And I'm sure that happened multiple times in the city of Newton, Connecticut. And friends, there are people who are going through incredible adjustments. God allows these things and yet, in these times of adjustments, we are tempted to say, God, this cannot be happening. What are you doing? I don't understand. I don't, I don't recognize what you're doing in my life. I've done things right. Why are you doing this to me? And we probably all thought those things. Whether we've said them out loud is another thing, but we've probably all thought them. These are all divine adjustments. These are all part of what life is made of. These things happen, and they happen more often than not. Now, shifting gears a little bit, a divine adjustment also happens when God is asking me to change, to change a habit, to change a way I think. And you're saying, I can't do that. God, I, I, can't, 
I can't change that sinful practice that I have. I can't change that, that bent I, I have toward doing X, Y, or Z. And God's saying, but I want you to adjust. And you can. A divine adjustment also happens when God asks me to begin a discipline or to participate in a ministry endeavor or even to open my mouth when I, I'm so used to not opening my mouth and sharing the gospel. God works through divine adjustments. As God molds, he will often do it through divine adjustments. And I think if you want, if you're honest and you look back at your life, you could look back at significant things that have happened in your life that cause you to contemplate where you are in your life to make decisions about the future of your life. God uses those circumstances to create in us an opportunity to think about him, to think about what we are doing in relationship to him, and to adjust according to his purposes. And sometimes we are faithful in adjusting to what he wants, or sometimes we run away. Now, to put it in different terms, God is in the business of making the impossible possible. So this morning, I would like for us to examine Mary's thinking process as she deals with her divine adjustment. And friends, there's always a battle going on in our minds about what God is asking us to do. I or another pastor could be up here sharing God's truth, preaching his word, and it could hit you because of some struggle or some sin that you're experiencing, and you are battling in your mind whether you should listen to it, whether, whether what is being said is true, rationalizing in a way. There's always this stuff that's floating around in our head. But before we do that, let's focus a little bit on this person, Mary. In the Protestant stream of the church, um, very little is said about Mary, we could almost say that we have been guilty of ignoring her. The pendulum has swung way too far, in my opinion. However, if we move over into the Roman Catholic Church, Mary is a very significant person. In 1854, the doctrine of immaculate conception was affirmed. It taught that Mary did not partake in original sin. In other words, she does not herself, she is not born in sin. She is sinless. That's how she was born. They also hold to the perpetual virginity of Mary. That her virginity continues on. They also believe in the assumption of Mary that, similar to Jesus, that she was assumed body and soul into heaven. And now she is in heaven acting as a mediator, as an intercessor. So there's this Incredible focus on Mary in the Catholic Church. But we as Protestants do not hold to those doctrines because they are not taught in Scripture, nor can they be supported from Scripture. Now, although that is how Mary is viewed in that context, and if you're living in a context where Catholicism is, you know, is, is all over the place and is part of the fabric of the culture, there is a tendency then to want to shy away from speaking out or giving her too much attention because you, you, don't want, you want people to know the truth. That doesn't mean we avoid talking about who she is and giving respect where respect is due. So even if there is faulty teaching about Mary, we must not set Mary aside. In fact, we must recognize that she is worthy of respect. Now, not as some God being, but as the one whom God chose 
to work His will so that His Son could come to this earth. So that Emmanuel could come. And not only that, we have much to learn from her as we observe how she interacts with God and how she interacts with what God is asking her to do. God did not come down beating Mary and saying, you are going to do this. But he does say, this is going to happen, and she has to respond, and we can learn a lot from that. And sometimes we think that God maybe just kind of functions in a tyrant fashion as he works his will and plan. God never works his plan in such ways where people are not desiring to do what God is doing through them. So whether it's Pilate who ultimately hands over Jesus, ultimately Pilate is acting in his own personality, in his own sinfulness to accomplish the plan of God. And he works also through us. And there are times when God's asked you to do something, you've done it reluctantly, and even in that reluctance, God is still being glorified because his will is being accomplished. doesn't mean that that reluctance or that sin does not need to be restored with God, but God still works his will even though we are imperfect people. And so certainly we must recognize here that Mary is not to be held up as a mediator, but she is to be respected because she is, in reality, very much like us. And we have much to learn from her. Now, each of, each of us has, by God, been given a task, a role, a function, and he's calling us to be a part of that ongoing, unfolding plan of, of, of spreading his gospel, of, of disseminating his truth among the people that we live and in the church for his glory. So when he calls us to something, how are we going to respond? What is our thinking process? When that divine adjustment comes, what are we going to do and how are we going to process that and, and how are we going to respond to him? So we observe her. Now, there's also a backdrop here that we must notice from the details that are given to us in verse 26. Notice what it says there. In the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, we must recognize something here, that there was a significant difference between Jerusalem and Galilee. Culturally speaking, there was a saying that would say this, if, if you want to gain wisdom, go to Jerusalem, because that's where the religious elite, that's where the thinking people are. But if you want to make money, go to Galilee. And the reason is because there's a little bit more freedom for paganism to be true in Galilee, and less so to be true in Jerusalem. And so there's freedom there to maybe do some different things and not so tight. And so there's, there's kind of a, a way they look down on that region. And certainly, as Jesus interacted with, uh, with Nathaniel, John chapter 1, verse 46, remember this, Nathaniel says this, can any good thing come out of where? Nazareth. Now there's something about Galilee, but even in Galilee there's a place called Nazareth that has this incredibly bad reputation, apparently, or he wouldn't something like that. But that was the dwelling of Mary and Joseph. And this is where Jesus ultimately would grow up. And so we, we want to see here that God is at work not through the religious elite, but through the normal, mundane, I want to say low, struggling, economic, cultural people. Now, this past Friday, typically take Fridays off, 
And so my wife and I just said, all right, we're gonna go, we're gonna go to the mall, we'll go to Stone Ridge Mall, we'll do some shopping, and we went in there. And we typically park at Penny's, you know, Jacques Penny, that, that particular place over there. But because of the traffic, we couldn't get in at that first entrance. If you know what I'm talking about, you had to go in the second entrance. So we decided, oh, we'll park over here where Cheesecake Factory is and P.F. Chang's and stuff like that. So we pull in there and thinking, oh, great, you know, we're not going to find a parking spot because it was just jam-packed full. And we just kind of pull around, still trying to figure out exactly where we're going to go. And boop, there was a spot that was opening up. And we popped in. It was pretty close to the entrance. And we, we entered right there when, you know, Cheesecake Factory to the left, P.F. Chang's is there walking into Macy's, you know, we kind of felt like, hey, you know, we're really, we're really powerful, strong people here, you know, with, with lots of credit cards, apparently. Um, but no, that was just our entry into the mall, right? So we go, we do our shopping, and we come out, and um, what, what, what happened next was really, really humorous. We, we walked down this path, same entrance, so we're coming out, P.F. Chang's to the left, Cheesecake Factory to the right, and right in front of us, at the curb, is this brand new... Rolls-Royce. Now, it looked like a Charger on steroids, okay? It really didn't look like a Rolls-Royce. It just had this modern look to it. And we're looking at it, and it's just like, all right, why is, why is a Rolls-Royce parked there? Parked at the curb. And as we're walking further up, mall security comes along, you know, and, 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 and pauses there, and we're looking at the mall security, and he's looking at us, and we're looking at this car, and we're all just kind of like smiling. And then off to the side comes this guy out of, out of, I think, another entrance, and he's got, you know, bags full. And he, this is what he looked like. He kind of, he was about maybe 25 or so, had kind of a hip kind of a look to him. He, he looked to me like an MMA kind of a person. You know, he was strong, that kind of a look, and he had the hat on kind of sideways and tattoos and stuff like that. And he's like, uh, sir, is there a problem here? And the mall security guy's like, um, yeah, uh, you need to move your car? And the guy's like, well, we're, we're having lunch. Can we like wait like 20 minutes or so before we move the car? And we're walking by thinking, it's like, are you like, do you not park in normal parking spots or something like that? I mean, you know, we're in the Rolls Royce, therefore we can park anywhere we want. You know, I mean, it's that kind of a thing. Now, I bring that up just to say that in the culture of Jesus' day, the same kind of distinction between people was present. And Jesus didn't come to the people driving the Rolls Royce chariots. He didn't come to the people shopping at Macy's. He came to those who were parking in the way off spots by Jacques Penet <laughs> in that entrance. That's not how you would typically think the story would go if you were writing it. You probably would not come to humble, frail humanity and say, I want to work through you. You probably would elevate it somewhat. But that's what we have here. And so, friends, there's, there's something beautiful about what's going on here because in Mary and in Joseph, we find ourselves. We drive normal cars. We live in normal houses. We're unassuming. We're insignificant. If we're going to be honest about things, I don't know of anyone here that drove their Rolls Royce this morning. I haven't checked the parking lot recently. Um, no? Okay, good. Um, just checking. All right. We're very, very much like they are. And so the, the point here is that if, if God chooses to work through Mary, chooses to work through Joseph, then certainly he also can and does choose to work through insignificant us, right? 
So be careful that you're, you're not saying, well, that's Mary, God, he's working through Mary, and they're the characters in the Bible, but he wouldn't, he wouldn't come to me and expect anything of me. Oh, no, he does. <laughs> and he comes to us with divine adjustments. And so this morning, again, I would like for us to examine Mary's thinking process as she deals with her divine adjustment. So let me give you the four, the four titles here just to kind of help you hang your hat. We're gonna look at the fact that she is committed, the fact that she is then confused, then she is confessing, and then she's conforming. She's committed, confused, confessing, conforming. Now, the, the, the point here is not saying, well, you need to be these things. The point is we're, we're kind of walking through her process and allowing that to be the, the way in which we, we enter into what God is doing in her life and what God is doing in our lives, okay? So I want you to notice, first of all, that Mary is, Mary is committed. In the six months, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now Luke identifies Mary, first of all, as a virgin. And here we understand that she is committed as a woman. She is faithful to whom God has created her to be, a woman. We, we could also add there um, you know, some other words maybe that would help us. That would mean that she has been honorable, she's pure, she's a woman of integrity, she's likely wholesome. Um, you know, this, this word is used to describe an unmarried woman who has not known a man sexually. And in this context, it, it tells us that she has, in her, her Judaistic culture of that day, she has lived an honorable life and she is committed to being uh, uh, a woman as God would desire for her to be a woman in that context. She's a virgin. She's also betrothed to Joseph. She's committed also then as a bride, because she's already entered into this. And betrothal, if you remember, is, is a, little bit more, a little bit more meatier than um, engagement. It's not just saying, oh, you know, you have a ring and we're gonna get married, and we have some people in our church that are in that process of getting married. Betrothal here, they're, they're already living together, but they are not completely, totally married. And they'll live together for a year without actually cohabiting sexually together. You say, well, how in the world does that happen? It's part of the culture of the day. That's the whole idea here of betrothal, this one-year period. Now, this is important because Luke is laying for us a foundation and understanding that will help us understand the impact of the rest of the story. She is a young woman who is pure, who is prepared in one sense, who is uh, committed in these areas, as a woman and as a bride, she's doing all the things right that she's supposed to do. Now, one of the things we've got to be careful here is that, um, is to, you know, is to, we want to admire Mary for her, for her character, but recognize also that she is far from being perfect. See, divine adjustments don't just come to those who are righteous. Divine adjustments don't just come to those who are living up to some certain standard. But I tell you what, when you are walking with God, you are far more likely to adjust to what he's asking you to do in a way that would honor God. And I think we have some of that going on here. Here's a, 
young woman who is committed as a young woman uh, living her life for God. And I think these words flesh out some of those realities. So the story today for us is that God is working his will in the life of seemingly insignificant Joe and Sally Christian. That's an amazing truth in reality because God didn't come to those religious elite. He came to Mary and he also comes to us. So she's committed. And, and I just want to challenge you. you know, life comes with many struggles, does it not? And, and the best way to be prepared for those struggles is to be walking with God. It's not to wait until that struggle comes and try to figure out, all right, what God, what are you doing? If you already have an awareness that God can and does do things, he even brings tragedy and difficulty to your life, then you already have a framework to live your life and to adjust based on what God is doing in your life. Okay? And so walking with God and being committed to him is foundational for these divine adjustments. Secondly, notice then Mary is also confused. I, I think if we were Mary, we would be too. Here we have the angel's message. Let's just note what the angel says here. Mary is, she's busy washing the dishes and, he, and, and this angel comes to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. All right, greetings, O favored one. This kind of, this statement here. Um, you, are, you are one who is endued with grace. You are one who has been the recipient of grace from God. This is a designation that is true for all believers. We are all, if we are believers accepted by God, we've been given his grace but we're told here that the angel says, the Lord is with you, all right? So it's like, bam, hey, I'm here, and by the way, don't panic because the Lord is with you. I mean, she needed those comforting words. You just got to kind of think of that story. I mean, it's just, you're just going through your mundane world, and all of a sudden, bam, an angel shows up. I mean, you probably wouldn't say, oh, would you like some tea? Let me go over and put the kettle on and that kind of, no, you'd be shocked. And this angel is talking to you, and why is he talking to me? So these words are kind of are there to, to kind of set the stage and say, whoa, slow down, it's okay. <laughs> you are highly favored, and the Lord is with you. Now, friends, probably the most comforting truth in Scripture is that the Lord is with us. We need that promise, and that promise is incredibly important, in particular with divine adjustments. I mean, what do, you, what do we say when tragedy hits? Well, one thing we know is that the Lord is with us. <laughs> and that helps us then kind of stand a little firmer and be able to look at the situation with a little bit more clarity, even though we may be in a fog. Now, notice Mary's response. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. So there's really two things that are going on. First of all, she's greatly troubled. She's greatly troubled. And what does it mean to be greatly troubled? It's a word that means to be confused or perplexed, thoroughly confused, almost like in a fog. Now, I have been away from home on a number of occasions, staying in hotels or staying in different places, and you probably have experienced this before, but you wake up in the middle of the night, and you know maybe you have to run to the restroom or something like that, so you get up, you're out of bed, and you start walking, you're bumping into this, what is that there, and why is that doing there? Because you still think you're at home. And you're walking around the fog and your, your head has not connected with you to be reminded that you're not at home. And so you're confused. You don't know what's going on. And it takes a little bit of time to actually settle in what's taking place. That's the kind of idea of what's taking place. She's trying to 
sort through what is going on here. But it also says that she is trying to discern. This is the word dialogizomai, okay? She's dialoguing in her head. This is, this, the idea here is that you're talking to yourself. You're, you're, you're this, there's this activity of debate that's going on in your mind. Let me just kind of give you an idea of what it would look like. Someone calls you on your voicemail and says, hey, call me back. We need to talk fast. Click. Uh, wonder, what, wonder what they need to talk to me about. What did I do? Um, did I say something? Is it just communicating information? Is it? And you can already in your mind be sorting through and think that they're actually calling for one thing. And you might even say something in anticipation of what it was. And it, it's completely different than what you thought. But in your mind... Your, your, your head is just bouncing around trying to figure out what's going on. That's what Mary is experiencing here. So she's in this fog. Her mind is just going in different places, trying to discern what is taking place here. And friends, there is a real confusion when divine adjustments come. And I think there's a wonderful picture here of just normal human nature. When a divine adjustment happens, we are confused. Why this? How come? What did I do? What's God trying to accomplish? And it is very confusing to us. Which leads us then to the next thing. Mary is confessing. Now we begin to see some of the the thought process transitioning and changing in particular because of what the angel is going to say next. She's confessing her lack of understanding. Look at verse 30. Verse 30, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Let's just pause there and just think about verse 30 and 31. The angel calms her down again. (laughs) Do not be afraid. Once again, you have found favor with God. So, so it's like, all right, you know, greetings favored when the Lord is with you. That, that didn't quite calm you down fully. You're still bouncing around trying to figure it out. I'm coming at you again. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. So he's, just, he's repeating it. I think these are incredibly comforting words. I think that's the tone that's going on here. And then the angel also then communicates the good news. Here we have five statements that reinforce an Old Testament promise. Beginning at verse 32, he will be a great, he'll be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So you will have a son, and he will be great. The word there is mega. All right? Now, Um, Isaiah 7.14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, or the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. He is God with us. I don't know how you can get any greater than that. Christmas is about God with us. And so the emphasis here is that that he is, like God, 
He is God with us. He will be great. Secondly, he will be called the Son of the Most High. He is El Elyon, God Most High. And the focus here, first of all, is about God's sovereignty. He is like God. He is sovereign. He is completely and totally in control. Secondly, it has the idea here, he says he will be the son of the Most High. That idea of son of is you will be a carbon copy of that Most High. So this one that is going to be born to you, this son, will be great, but he will be a carbon copy of the one who is Most High. He will have all those qualities that the Father possesses. Then we have three more that really work together here. He will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. Now I want you to go back in this passage and I want you to notice uh, verse 27. We'll pick it up at verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of what? Of David. And we're told here that he will be given the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And so these three statements really are, are, are clearly understood by a practicing Jew. They're found in, or really the, the essence of these three statements are found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you would turn there, please, and we'll look at verses 13 through 16. And just you can follow along, you can just listen. Again, these are, as a practicing Jew, these are passages that you would mind because they're focusing on the, the, the coming and the, the certainty of this new kingdom where the Messiah reigns. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his father or his kingdom forever. I, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I look uh, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. He's referring here to David, okay? And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the throne of David looks ahead here to one that would come and be established for how long? Forever. Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. Servant's house. Idea there is talking about the Messiah's house. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. So, so this, for Mary, was an awareness that not only is the son going to be great, not only is the son going to be El Elyon, the son of the Most High, a carbon copy of that father. The son also would be the king who would reign on the throne of David, would reign of the house of Jacob, and this kingdom would have no end. So this is an incredible promise that is now an old promise reinforced afresh to Mary. And how does Mary respond to that message? Well, and Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, I'm glad she didn't say, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
How does she respond? <laughs> How will this be since I am a virgin? She's not surprised that the Messiah is coming, but that God has chosen for him to come through her. This isn't exactly what she thought would be the case. I am confused. Please help me to understand. And so what is unfolding as an adjustment, a divine adjustment in life is this, that I'm going to have a son, and I'm going to have a son now, and I'm going to have a son by whom? Not Joseph. How is this going to be? First of all, I'm a virgin. That's physical limitation. Secondly, I am betrothed. I will be affected. That's personal rejection. I will be carrying a child that is not Joseph's. It's out of wedlock, and that will result in public humiliation. I mean, these are all the, the dominoes that are following now as she's thinking about what the angel is saying to her that he says is going to happen to her. How can this be? In other words, God, this is going to be ugly. Now, if you were married, you probably would be thinking to yourself and wanting to say something like this, God, could, couldn't you do something different? Couldn't you, like, you know, visit someone else? Um, can't you work your will another way? And listen, isn't that often how we would respond to some of these divine adjustments that God brings our way? God, you know, right now is not a good time, <laughs> as if any time's a good time. God, you know, this, this isn't, you know, well, let's just summarize by saying this. Mary's lack of understanding doesn't mean that she had a lack of faith. And your lack of understanding does not mean that you have a lack of faith. In fact, there's a lot of things that we do as God's children that we don't completely understand, but we do it by faith. When it comes to disciplining our children, you know, sometimes you exercise that discipline and you're doing it by faith because you're not seeing immediate results, right? Well, maybe in my household that's true. Maybe not in yours. Maybe you get perfect results in your household, right? You, you get the point. You, you, we do things by faith. God, I, you know, I, I, want to, I want to trust you more. I want to learn about you more. And so you start applying the you know, spiritual disciplines in your life. And it's just like, I don't feel different. But listen, trust that God is working through what he has promised to work through. And my understanding does not equal my faith. And, and, and that's going to be fleshed out more as we move and, and, and further into this text. Because not only is Mary confessing, but now ultimately she is conforming. Now notice what she's conforming to. She's conforming to the sovereignty of God. She's conforming to his purposes that he wants to accomplish now through her. And so the angel, again, comforts her with an explanation. An explanation that first of all talks about the power of God. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So you have the Holy Spirit, the Most High, the Holy Child resulting in the Son of God. What, what does all this mean? Here God is giving us the details of his plan in, in clouds and shrouds of mystery. 
He doesn't give us the specific details, the specific data of exactly how this is all going to happen. You might want to summarize it this way. The powerful presence of God will take care of this, Mary. I'm saying this is going to happen, and my power and my presence will accomplish what I desire to do in you and through you. The Holy Spirit will actively work in you. This is not coming down, not God coming down and somehow having relations with mankind. This is a sovereign, powerful God that changes someone's condition in their womb for His glory. Conception takes place. The power of God then. But then there's also verse 36, the proof of Elizabeth. I mean, and this is, isn't it incredible that God bookends this passage and this story and, and, and might want to say this revelation by two stories. The announcement of the birth of John the Baptist to Baron Elizabeth. I mean, wow. That was the first, you know, silence broken. You're going to have a son. It's going to be John. He's going to prepare the way. So Elizabeth now is already pregnant, right? Six months. And then the other side of, of our text today is the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, where God is promising, uh, where God promises are confirmed as they talk with each other and as they celebrate what God is doing. So we have here then the proof of Elizabeth. God brings oftentimes into the context of what he's calling us to do words of comfort, examples of other people who have, who have also been the recipients of his strength and his grace and his comfort during those times of difficulty. Now, friends, when you experience a divine adjustment, isn't it helpful when someone who has been through something similar comes to you and says, listen, this is hard, I know it's hard, and we went through X, Y, and Z, and if, you, if we can just be a resource and a help to you, just, we, we just want you to know you can come and talk to us anytime. Now, after you get over that initial pride and that initial struggle, you pick up the phone, you call those people, and God can use those people who've been through those times as a great resource and a help to you. And God, when he gives us the divine adjustment, doesn't just kind of do it in a cold way. I think he also understands us and he nurtures us by other people who have also been through difficult times. But 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation or trial that is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. See, other people have gone through it too. Other people have gone through these difficult times. So we have this, this proof of Elizabeth, and you ultimately have the promise of God, for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Now, a little caution here. This is not a blanket statement that some skeptic can pull and say, ah, see, nothing is impossible with God. God cannot, like, you know, swallow up all of his creation in one gulp, including himself, and somehow appear again. Some logical foolishness. This is not talking about that. What is specifically going on here? A careful study of this verse will reveal this. That the translation is talking here about not one small word, one rima, shall be impossible. In other words, what God says, God will do. So when it says nothing shall be impossible with God, it means when God says this is what's going to happen, you can trust that God brings the power and the ability to accomplish what he says 
is going to happen. What he says is true. What he promises is true. And he backs it up with himself. He will fulfill his promises. You can count on it. So in Genesis 18, 14, when God says to Abraham about Sarah, is there anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year. And barren Sarah will have a son. Nothing is impossible for God when God has spoken what he is going to do. Now friends, these are all incredibly comforting words to Mary. I'm not asking you to do something that is impossible. I'm not asking you actually to do anything except to carry this child and be submissive to my will and to be humble to my purposes that I want to do through you. But I am the one who will bring the power. I am the one who will accomplish this great thing. And Mary responds to God's sovereignty, verse 38, and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I am your, literally, slave. I'm your slave, girl, God. Now, you, you, you may be wrestling with and wondering in your heart, is what God is asking Mary to do, is this a privilege or is this a punishment? When God brings a divine adjustment, we typically think of it in terms of what did I do to deserve this? Now, if we went to Connecticut today and you talked to all the families that had just lost these little children, I don't think you can say, what did you do to deserve this? I don't think you can connect those dots at all. Right, evil entered that school, sinful man entered that school, and was rampant because of sin. And I don't think this is a connecting the dots thing of the parents, and I didn't raise my kids, all this kind of stuff. No. You, you, you really can't explain that except for that evil is present in this world. Now, friends, that's it's hard, but in the midst of all that, there are going to be great Incredible stories. In the midst of all that, as I said earlier, families are coming together. They're hugging their children. I went to my son's basketball game at Redwood Christian that very same afternoon, and I think there were more parents early to pick their kids up from school there than I've ever seen. Because parents on that day said, there are important things in this world the primary importance are my family, are my kids. And that's not a bad thing, friends. And although that may not be directly connected because you know people in Connecticut, but it is a way that God uses tragedy to help us in what we're doing and what he's called us to. So even in tragedy, there are good things that are happening. There are good things that are being accomplished that God has a purpose for. We've got to be careful not to connect specific dots, but just say God is at work. He's in control. He knows. Now someone might be tempted, listen, Mary, I know you're struggling with submitting to God and all the things that might happen if you do that, but why don't you just Pull Joseph aside and just be honest with him about what happened. 
So you can imagine the scene. Mary goes to Joseph. He's finishing up with his, his chair and dusting off the wood from his, his clothes. And she says, Joseph, I know that what you're thinking, but an angel appeared to me and told me what was going to happen. Yeah, all right. Now, this is why Matthew records for us that God had to give specific revelation to Joseph. Because Joseph was going to hand her over for divorce. Now, a lot to be commended to him because of the way in which he was processing that. It seems like he was a, a good man and wanted to protect her, but, but God entered into that world. And here's specifically what we're told in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 19. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Mary had a divine adjustment, so did Joseph. I gotta do what? God had to tell Joseph because on his own, I'm sure he would not believe. Now, her obedience would then result in a tarnished reputation potentially a dissolving of her marriage through divorce, public shame, gossip, what people would say. In fact, in John chapter 8, verse 41, as Jesus is interacting with the Jews, it's very interesting that they bring this up about Jesus. Verse 41 of John 8, you are doing these, these works, sorry, you're doing the works your father did, Jesus says, and they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, we have one father, even God. So there even was apparently some question about Jesus' origin then that was used against him, kind of hangering and hovering. But her submission is submission to God's purposes. Whatever you desire to do, God, I'm humbling myself before you. She faces being rejected by the one she loves. She faces being despised by her own community, but her submission is to be a slave girl for the glory of her God. And friends, God calls us to be slaves for his glory, even in times of divine adjustment, and especially in times of divine adjustment. And what you have here then is having heard the message from the angel, having wrestled with it in her head, having poured out her heart, so to speak, and in inability to comprehend what's going on, you ultimately have complete and total submission even in light of the potential problems she would face. It's a pretty powerful example for us. It's a pretty powerful processing of the things that she is going through in her heart and her mind to be submissive and obedient to her God. And friends, that is so true of us. How many times has God said to you, I want you to do this, I want you to go to that person and you know that you sinned against them and you need to confess that sin and you need to seek forgiveness and you're like, God, I, can't we just forget about it? Love covers a multitude of sins and just go on, right? He says, no, this is where I want you to go. 
and you wrestle in your mind and you humble yourself and say, okay, God, I'm going to do it and I'm going to do it with your strength. I'm going to do it for your glory. And he wants in you complete and total submission even in light of potential problems, even if that person blows up in your face. He wants your complete and total submission. He wants us to be holding on to him and to be doing his will. Now, I want to bring all this to a close. But I have really three kind of principles that I want to pull out of our text here this morning as we kind of bring it to a close and then, then three kind of summarizing statements. So the first thing is this, concluding thoughts. Number one, God is in the business of making the impossible possible. My friends, that, that marriage that seems stale and without any hope of improvement, I just want to plead with you, don't throw in the towel. God can make what seems impossible possible. He can that relationship that has been locked in the box of unforgiveness and bitterness for so long, don't give, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. God can make what seems impossible possible. That debt that seems to have multiplied and, and, and piled up and, and you're, just, you're looking at this mountain of struggle before you, don't give up. God can take what seems impossible and make it possible. That loved one, you will see over the next few weeks who scoffs at your walk with God and mocks your attempts to share the gospel, don't give up. God is still in the business of making the impossible possible. That tragedy in Connecticut that seems to make no earthly sense, don't allow it to cause you to give up or throw in the towel and say, where is God? Allow it to be an opportunity to remind you that with God, nothing is impossible. He makes the impossible possible. Now friends, those families who have struggled, they are going through an incredible divine adjustment and what they need from us is our compassion and our prayers and any time that someone goes through something like that, um, that's one of the things that we can do. But life, friends, will bring divine adjustments to us. He doesn't want us to give up. He wants us to see in Mary the kind of wrestling match that goes on in our heads seeking to glorify him. The fear, the panic, the confusion, the processing, the faith, the submission, all of that is all part of what it means to be a child of God. And sometimes you can beat yourself up because you're thinking, you know, I'm, I'm fearful and she is going through those emotions. She's struggling that way, and it's a, just a beautiful picture of what we go through. But God wants us to fight to the end to be submissive to him. So God is in the business of making the impossible possible. Here's the second thing. God uses divine adjustments to accomplish his purposes. What seems impossible to you may simply be God working his will and way through you. In that moment, you may be standing and all around you things are happening. There's noise, there's chaos, there's smoke, or whatever it might be. But God has a plan. God has a purpose that he is at work accomplishing in your life. I'm sure if we were to go around this room, we could share some stories of divine adjustment that God has allowed that have had incredible effect on our lives and our walk with him. But just for the moment, let's just kind of just do a quick, quick glance through the pages of Scripture and just think of some divine adjustments that, that are found in the text of God's word. 
How about Noah? I want you to build an ark. You think that was an adjustment? Better believe it. Abraham, I want to make a nation through you. Oh, really? Uh huh. Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. Right? I can't speak. I can't. Divine adjustment. David, God speaking through Nathan the prophet, you are the man. And of course, that was his confrontation of David after he committed sin with Bathsheba and killing her husband. That was a divine adjustment for David. Paul, God speaking to him while he was Saul, why are you persecuting me? Divine adjustment. Again, Paul, Demas has forsaken me. Now, just there are all these interactions we have in Scripture that are full of divine adjustments. Life is full of divine adjustments. Ministry is full of these kind of adjustments. And if we are not willing to recognize God's sovereignty in them, we are going to be fighting him all the way. And that's not what he wants. And that's not where walking with God and the joy of walking with God comes from. It comes from recognizing that he is sovereign, that he works through little, insignificant, sinful me, but he has a plan that he wants to work, and he wants us to adjust to that plan, whatever it might be. And to recognize that even the tragedy or the difficulty of my situation, other people are going to be encouraged and strengthened. You know, I was sitting there listening to Gary Pollard and his wife Darcy. This is the, the, the next morning after their house just went up in smoke, and they're sitting in a staff meeting, and they're praising God. Well, what happened? Well, the, the house burned. Gary's like, you know, all, all of my cabinetry, just up and spoke. All those times and hours of putting all this stuff together. They lost their pictures. But there was a joy. <laughs> there was a joy that only comes because they recognize that there's a sovereign God who's working his will. And we just sat back and we just rejoiced with them because their perspective was, you know what? This was God's purpose. Now, I'm sure that Darcy or Gary, as they were there and as they thought about it, I'm sure there were times when they were tearful, they wept, they were adjusting with the situation, but they fought through to say, God, you're sovereign, you're on the throne, and I'm going to glorify you. But there's a reality about that struggle that we need to be honest about. The third thing here is this. We want and expect God to adjust to us, but God wants us to adjust to him. Now, friends, we are living in America, the country that is all about me. And we're happy coming to church. We're happy having a relationship with God, but we're most happy when God does our bidding, right? Let's go to a prayer meeting. And let's pray for what we want God to do. Okay, I recognize that. But God doesn't always do what we want him to do, does he? God wants us to adjust to him. God is not some kind of cosmic genie that we rub whenever we need his help and he's going to come and he's going to do what we want him to do. No, he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, seated on his throne and we appeal to him and we listen 
by virtue of his word and his Holy Spirit working through those things. And it is God then who speaks and we then are to adjust to what he calls us to do. And that's where we find peace and safety and joy and comfort. So, do you need to adjust to God's adjustment in your life? Are you bitter about his plan for your life? Are you confused? Are you afraid? There's three things then I want us to finish up with here, and that's this. Number one, consider the adjustment in your life as God's plan. Whatever you may be going through, whatever that adjustment is, maybe it's an adjustment that's just around the corner and God is using this message as preparation for what is going to happen. Not trying to put panic in anyone. It's just the reality of life. All right, fight to consider the adjustment in your life as God's plan. I don't understand it. God's not asking you to understand it. He's asking you to trust him and to be submissive to him, and to hold on to him. Secondly, confess to God your confusion and lack of understanding. You know what? He doesn't mind hearing that. That's not you being unfaithful to God because you don't understand. That's not you being unfaithful to God because you're confused. That is you crying out to God, saying, God, I am helpless. I need you. And oftentimes, when we cry out to God like that, we just ultimately resign ourselves by holding on to him. I'm going to trust you because nothing is impossible with you because you keep your word fully, completely to the end. And the third thing is this then. Claim the power, the proof, the promises of God and conform yourself to his sovereignty. There's, there's a sense, friends, that we, in the midst of those, those divine adjustments that he brings our way that we have to fight to hold on to what he says is true and not let go. So you're looking for all these sources of support and help. It could be verses of scripture. It could be people's examples. It could be words of comfort. It could be um, you know, a message you hear on the radio or from church or whatever it might be. And you're pulling all these things together and you're holding on to what God says because ultimately you want to submit to his will. Now friends, Christmas is a divine adjustment. God in the flesh changed everything. And this Christmas, God is still at work accomplishing his purposes through his children. And we are all here today as evidence of that. And our desire is to work as best we can to glorify him with our response to what he brings to us. And we need his help to do that. And Mary is just a wonderful example of how she interacts with her sovereign God. Lord, help us today. Our hearts are heavy because of the tragedy that we are aware of, Lord. Although it is about 3,000 miles away, Lord, um, we, we, we sense uh, the urgency and the seriousness and the tragedy, Lord, of it all. And yet, Lord, for many of us, uh, we are walking through adjustments in our lives. Some other people are aware of, some your children are praying for, some 
we are carrying in the quietness of our hearts. And Lord, I ask that as your Holy Spirit works through your revealed word, as Mary, like us, struggled with what you wanted her to do, Lord, that we also in our struggle would fight our way to be conformed to your will. And Lord, that even the process is part of your plan of working in us. And certainly there may be some areas that we need to confess to you, but Lord, I ask that you would give us a resolve to see you as sovereign, seated on a throne, high and lifted up, totally and completely in control of all that is going on, working your will and your plan through little old meager us. And you care, and you're at work, and you have a plan. And help us, Lord, to see that, to hold on to you in it, and to submit to you, and in submitting, Lord, to live our lives for your glory. Lord, may, may this day be the beginning of a fresh approach to what you have for us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen.